Welcome back to Spiders Have Sex. Let's talk about it. My name is Isabella. I'm a sophomore and I'm double majoring in leadership studies, political science, and a minor in WGSS. Hi, everybody. My name is Andy. I'm also a sophomore and I'm a double major in leadership studies and WGSS. Uh, Isabella and I just joined the Spiders Have Sex podcast. And for those of you who aren't familiar, we did our own little podcast last year that was called The Rainbow Connection. Uh, we were doing it as a project for the Will program. And it was like a little teeny tiny project with just a couple of us. So when we were learning about spiders have sex coming back together, we thought that it might be a great idea for us to combine our powers. So now Sam, Bobby, Isabella, and I are working together. And the Rainbow Connection, which was our little queer life on campus podcast, is now part of Spiders Have Sex, which we're all really, really excited about. So what we're going to be doing is every once in a while, we'll interrupt the regularly scheduled programming of just talking about sexual relationships and talk a little about a little bit about queer identity um, and queerness on college campuses and how that factors into it while still keeping the spiders have sex general yes. theme i yeah. might add we're not, we're not taking over anything we're just like you know adding a little extra flair to the already wonderful podcast so true so true um so today we're going to do a episode about trans identity on college campuses and also specifically the University of Richmond campus because our campus looks a little different. Um, so today we have one of my very good friends, Jasmine Kacharetsian, with, with us. Jasmine is a sophomore and she's one of the very few openly transgender students on the University of Richmond campus. She's the head of UR's transgender genderqueer affinity group called Kaleidoscope and she's also a member of WCGA along with both of us. Um, welcome, Jasmine. Hi, guys. Crazy seeing you here. <laughs> Excited to have you here with us. Um, so we have a couple questions for you just to kind of like get a sense of what your experience has been like on campus and what you think is important for everybody to learn about trans identity in our kind of like new and changing sphere of understanding the gender spectrum on college campuses. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, like recent stuff, uh, particularly like um, political stuff um, has led a lot more people to be considering uh, both uh, what it means to be transgender from a gender trans from a gender perspective, but also um, how how being transgender or being uh, gender clear queer affects your day to day life. Mm -hmm. Cool, <clears throat> excited to talk about it. So our first question is just tell us like a little bit about your experience as a trans woman on this campus. Generally, it can be like your day to day. It can be like particular issues that you've had, anything you want. So, I mean, the biggest thing for me was coming to U of R. I tried to apply for gender flexible housing um, my first year. And uh, despite like being in sort of like direct contact with the housing department and submitting all the forms and whatnot, um, I still ended up uh, getting roomed with a man, and uh, that was like a very disrupting thing to have happen to you, especially at the very beginning of the semester when you're, you know, you're still trying to figure out what campus life is going to be like, who who you're going to associate with, uh, and just all all of that stuff. Obviously, on top of like the academic aspect you know you're in college for the first time and so that's that was a very stressful thing to go through i was lucky enough that uh my orientation advisor was able to guide me through the process of you know changing my name uh in the u of r system um helping me get into a single instead of being roomed with a man um even though the person that i was roomed with he's great i love him 
Um, still, still chat with him all the time. He's he's great. Love him. Love yes. love Noah. Yes, shout out to him. A- absolute <laughs> absolute king. But uh, did not want to room with him, uh, and so I was I was able to get a lot of help with that. But it also sort of highlights that if I hadn't had an orientation advisor that was able to help me with that. I would not have known what to do. Like I wasn't at that point taking those steps on my own. So it likely would have been like a few weeks before I was able to do anything on my own. Yeah, there's no system in place that was like ready to handle what had happened. Yeah, and there was no one like even sort of checking up on me being like, hey, did this thing work out or anything mm-hmm. like that? It was just sort of, well, you're, here's your room. Good luck. Oh boy. Yikes. Um, yeah, that's definitely like a very interesting process to go into, especially like first semester of like your first year in college. So, but I'm glad it all worked out in the end. Yeah, things working out is always good. But I mean, again, just because something works out doesn't mean that it was okay. Like, you know, the mm-hmm. ends justifying the means sort of thing. And so I like one of the things that I'm working on uh, right now with with you, in fact, Andy, on yeah. uh, WCGA is we're working on trying to make the housing process specifically for first years, but also just for everyone um, way more gender gender inclusive. Yeah. So that, you know, particularly first years, but also just anyone can be able to get gender flexible housing and housing that matches their identity. Because there's a big difference between preventative measures that like go into it trying to account for like individual people's needs versus like an after the fact consideration where it's like oh we put you in like a housing location that directly contradicts with your gender identity hmm let's fix that for just you exactly it's mm-hmm. it's it's the difference between solving problems as they come up and preventing problems from existing in the first place and those things are just simply not the same, especially yeah. from the perspective of the person that is, you know, facing those problems. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big thing that we're going to touch on in our conversation today of, like, inclusive and affirming spaces and, like, what spaces on this campus are designed for kind of, like, inclusive and affirming experiences and which ones directly prevent that. Yeah. So to go into our next question, did you know before coming to UR that you would be one of the only openly trans students on campus? I mean, I didn't know it per se, but I did know. Uh, I did know that there were, there was not a huge population of U of R students. Um, my mom uh, actually works for the University of Richmond, so I, I have been to the University of Richmond. Uh, multiple times before I ever like went here academically and I had just always you know I I, the fact that the University of Richmond does not necessarily attract the most diverse population especially like uh, relating to LGBTQ spaces um, was not surprising to me so while I wasn't like oh I am definitely going to be the only trans person I did go in sort of being aware of the fact that there weren't going to be a lot of people like me. Yeah. So yeah. that was definitely like a very scary thing going into college. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. 
Um, one of the questions that we wanted to talk, or, or one of the things that we want to talk about is like, like I said, affirming and inclusive spaces versus exclusive spaces. And so I kind of wanted to ask, are there spaces on campus that you feel like don't hold space for genderqueer or not cis students? And I know that you spoke about housing already and the way that that process impacted you, but also thinking about the fact that like the University of Richmond's on the two college system and we have a single gender housing system and a sex-based division between the students. And like, that's a big thing that's really specific to the University of Richmond campus. So I definitely want to touch on like, how that how you feel like that holds space yeah. for students who don't identify as cisgender. Absolutely. I mean, I think that like the the distinction between uh, Richmond College and West Hampton College is sort of one of the biggest sticklers there because um, you know, obviously I am a member of West Hampton College. Um, I found I have found that my experience with West Hampton College has actually been really good. It's been really affirming and so from the perspective of a trans woman, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. really nice to exist in a space that's sort of meant to be like a only girls allowed thing or whatever. So that so while that's very useful to me personally, I think that the existence of that system is, you know, obviously inherently, um, you know, not inclusive towards anyone with a identity that doesn't fit on the binary so um, like any sort of non-binary labels are not necessarily going to have their perfect fit which has resulted in a lot of uh, what uh, which has resulted in Richmond being uh, uh, between either either you're a man or you're anything else and you go to West Hampton Mm -hmm. Um, which I've noticed a lot of people doing and I have and I know some people who are uh assigned male at birth and currently in the Richmond College who are like, oh, I would kind of want to maybe transition to the West Hampton College, even though I don't identify as a woman per se, but I don't feel accepted in the Richmond College. Yeah, I think that there's definitely a big difference between kind of the Richmond and the West Hampton approach, I guess, to gender, because Richmond College is kind of held more as a men's space. And then West Hampton's college... West Hampton College was traditionally a women's space, but I know that a lot of like the deans and stuff, they've tried to expand it to be like, we take everybody. But there is there is a very tangible imbalance in terms of like who is represented on each side. And it's more like West Hampton College no longer considers itself a women's space, but Richmond College is still a men's space. Yeah, yeah I think, and, and this, I feel like this has happened in a lot of spaces where men's spaces are always men's spaces. But then women's spaces a lot of times evolve into just sort of general safe spaces for, like, everyone who's not a man. And I think that there, that, like, that's, that's a very interesting thing to me that so consistently um, the men's spaces are just for men, yeah. whereas the women's spaces are honestly expected to accommodate for all of those other identities. And I, I don't think that's equitable, both from the standpoint of the people who are, you know, in charge of the West Hampton government, you know, needing to put in more work to make their space particularly inclusive, but it's also more work from the perspective of, you know, the students who don't identify within the binary and would honestly just rather exist in a one college system. I think a lot of us would definitely rather exist in a one college system. Yeah. I think it would make things a lot easier too, because I feel like 
especially like when you first arrive on campus, like learning about the two college system can be very overwhelming and also very stressful too. Again, if you're having like mixed feelings of whether or not you want to be assigned to a specific college. Mm -hmm. So I feel like a one college system could kind of alleviate some of those anxieties and stress, um, especially a lot of first years can come into. Did you know that it was going to be a two-college system before you got here? Because I didn't until I got the email I, that was like, welcome to West Hampton. I, the, I learned it, like, the summer before, but only because I, I, I was dating someone whose older sister either was at U of R or had gone to U of R. Mm-hmm. So, she, so, like, the whole West Hampton yeah. thing. She was like, hey, just so you know. West Hampton College is going to be on your diploma, not Richmond College. Fascinating. And I was like, what's up with that? Because I, I didn't know anything about that. I So that, that was a complete shock to me. I think that that's definitely, in addition to the two-college system like having its own issues, I think that there's a huge lack of transparency in the way that this school approaches it because they know that it's going to disincentivize students, and especially queer students, from coming mm-hmm. here. It's like the binary system, they know it's kind of perceived as a negative to possible admittance. And so they hide it. Like, I didn't know that the two college system was going to exist until I was like looking for merch on the website and I saw a West Hampton College sweatshirt. And I was like, what is West Hampton College? I did not find out until like I was actually on campus and we had like orientation. They were like, you're in West Hampton. I was like, what the heck is that? Because they never (laughs) mentioned anything during any orientation, like, you know, stuff before that event, or even, like, when they have, like, tours, they don't mention that at all to the students. Yeah, the fact that they don't mention that on tours is really weird to me. It's not weird, it's intentional. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because, like, obviously, if you're advertising yourself as a, you know, a sort of a boys' college, girls' college, you know, that, that sort of puts you in a weird place because most boys' college, girls' college models... Uh, are very intentional about being a boys' college versus a girl college, and they will sort of intentionally create that binary, which obviously also discourages uh, queer students from going there. But with this, it's more hidden, and, like, they get away with that because it's maybe not as real of a distinction. Like, you know, obviously I'm interacting with Richmond students every day, so... Yeah, it's it's weird, and I wish they didn't do it. I also wish they didn't do it. Me too. I wrote a whole op-ed about it. So <laughs> I honestly, I yeah, I have very passionate feelings about it too. Yeah. Yeah, so kind of going along with that, you know, being on campus, you know, so far for a whole year, you know, fall semester of your sophomore year, um, what resources or experiences, like, have been affirming to you so far being on campus? So, I mean, the biggest one for me is just, like, the Equity Center. I've I've had a really, really good experience with uh, SCEI, which is the Student Center of Equity and Inclusion. Um, obviously, Casey Butler has been a huge help for me. They are the um, head of LGBTQ life on campus. Um, they're also, you know, who they're, they're the person who helps me out with a lot of the kaleidoscope stuff. Um, they, you know, I, I see them when I work at the Equity Center. Uh and so that space has, you know, a, a lot helped me, um, you know, get get a better understanding of who I am, how I fit into like the university, and and providing at least sort of some kind of framework for me as a, you know, noticeably queer individual mm-hmm. to interact with a university that is 
maybe a little bit, uh, maybe a few years back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's, we love SEI. We do. Hearts to SEI, hearts to Casey. I was going to say, we love Casey. Yes. We love Casey. We love Casey Butler. What about, like, your experiences with Kaleidoscope? Because I know you recently started running that. Yeah, so last year I was technically in like the Kaleidoscope group chat, but I, I didn't actually go to any of the meetings. <laughs> but um, they were uh, like once a month, and at least from my understanding, uh, going into leading it, they weren't super, uh, it, w- it wasn't super community-based. So my goal when creating Kaleidoscope uh, was to create a space where um, people of just gender queer identities can just feel like they have a place to exist and experience life without that fear of judgment, without the fear of getting misgendered, anything like that. So honestly, like in our meetings thus far, I think we've had we've had two or three. M- I think only two like major meetings this semester um but we haven't really discussed like none of the meetings have been like oh let's you know let's talk about gender because mm-hmm. I think um for a lot of us we're we're kind of exhausted yeah. about talking about gender because um like a lot of the times when you're interacting with a very like cishet school you're just sort of randomly asked to explain your identity to strangers and um, what, what, from my personal experience, I always try to educate people the best I can. But also when you're doing that a lot, like that's exhausting. Sometimes yeah. you don't want to talk about your gender. So I've, I've just been trying to create Kaleidoscope as just a place where people can exist and be comfortable mm-hmm. and not need to worry about everything else. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's really that's really good, and I'm I'm really excited to see like what else Kaleidoscope has like in the future. I feel like you're gonna be a great leader for that. Well, thank you. I'm I'm hoping that um, as as the years go on, I'm able to build up maybe a little bit of a larger community, um, and maybe do some like larger scale events that you know maybe even involve uh, more parts of the campus. But for now, for now, this is what we're doing, and I'm and I'm very happy about it. I'm glad. I think that there's definitely, like, something to be said about, like, whose burden it is to, like, or who is being given the burden of, like, making progress on this campus when it comes to, like, all marginalized identities, but right now we're talking about gender, because it's, like, yes, genderqueer people, like, they have, I don't even, hold on, let me figure out how to phrase this. Genderqueer people have the right to, like, ask for the spaces that they need However, it's not their responsibility to create those spaces. And I feel like at this school, we have SEI, but SEI is also really recent. Casey was only appointed when we got to school. Like Casey's only been here as long as we have. Um, And they've done great work in the time that they've been here. But there's just, there's something to be said about the, who on this campus has to carry the burden of improving this campus. And it's usually not the faculty and it's not administration, it's the students. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of cases, especially with the work that like SCAI is doing, and I know we've talked about uh, talked to Casey about this, but in a lot of cases, the burden is being put on the students mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. you know, create these affinity groups, advocate for what you want. And 
while I, I really I really think it's important to like advocate for you know things you need things you want I also think that it's a lot of the times really draining to have the same students who are like I need this space of comfort and relaxation to be hit with like okay create that space yeah like the like I would it would be much easier from my standpoint if Kaleidoscope was just a thing that already existed and was ran by someone I am running it because I feel like you know it is a thing that should exist and I think I can you know help it exist but I I'm not running it just because you know oh I particularly like running affinity groups yeah, yeah. I, I run it because it needs to exist and I love the people who are all in it yeah and I think by putting this expectation on students to do all of this work we are sort of creating an environment that kind of says we don't care about uh, the 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 negative impacts this is having on you yeah we you yeah. know you we're giving you the tools to create it but you know outside of that it's it's really difficult yeah because like not only is this intensive emotional labor it's also invisible labor like oh yes if you think about like we were talking about what they say on the tours one thing they don't point out the two college system one thing they do point out the SEI building and like the school makes a point to when students are able to like fight and fight and get what they want and what they need and what they deserve change made on campus the school takes credit for that and do you think that they market the fact that it's student labor no no, because it it's well. First of all, like, why would that? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that so much student labor makes it, in a lot of cases, really difficult for students to have as as strong mental health because, yeah. like, obviously working in areas that are so closely related to things that mean so much to you. Like, if if something happened to Kaleidoscope and, like, for some reason it was no longer allowed to be a group, that would be, like, devastating yeah. to me. Because, obviously, you know, I've put, like, my personal time and effort into it, but it's also just something that I care so much about because it's it's a community that I, I wish I was able to access my first year. It was a community that I wish I had had since the day I came out. Um, so if something happened to that, that would be, like, devastating to me. And, you know, there's there's just an expectation for us to work on these things that we're so passionate about with no sort of regard for uh, what happens if something goes wrong. Yeah, exactly. And it's, like, same thing with, like, us working on gender-flexible housing. Like, I'm so excited that we have the opportunity to make this better because I think that it will help people after us and it's very necessary but at the same time, if you and I didn't have to be doing gender flexible housing, we could be doing like other things that we're expected to be able to do as part of a college experience. And there is something that's taken away when we're expected to do that labor. Yeah, like obviously, you know, that that is great experience for whatever, you know, I, I, I intend yeah. to go into like the nonprofit field. So obviously that sort of collaborative experience is very beneficial. But at the same time, I am doing the job I'm I'm effectively doing unpaid labor for yeah. a, a an 
um, an administrative body that, or for a department rather, that should be able to do this, yeah. right? Yeah. Like I, I am needing to do work that would not need to be done if this was an equitable system. Yes. Yes. It kind of reminds me of like something I heard, um, I think it was like maybe during our wellness classes, but um, one of the staff members at SEI said that like if campus was already an inclusive, equitable space, then we wouldn't need SEI in the first place. But because, you know, we have these instances where it isn't equitable or as inclusive as it could be, we are putting a lot of that burden on the staff members and the students collectively, which, you know, I feel like it's unfair, especially if it's not fairly compensated for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think sort of similarly to that, there's not any kind of collective pressure being put on, like, um, groups that are more privileged and this this is both um an issue within richmond and just generally but like uh to pick on richmond college again (laughs) um like there is i i haven't really heard any of them uh i haven't heard any word from that body discussing like any kind of gender flexible housing Mm -hmm. things any kind of you know i i think at, at least the environment is culturally less towards, um, like, uh, progress and inclusion and more towards, you know, obviously the problems that are prevalent to them as a majority white man body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wish there was a way that there could be more pressure put on more privileged groups to sort of like hey this is also an issue that needs helping you know uh gender queer people need to feel included and we would like your help with this and there's not a lot of give back there and yeah. that's something yeah. that you know i i wish i wish there was yeah well kind of on that Along that vein, um, and talking about how dominant group members or like people who are in positions of privilege can, I don't know, take on their share, I guess is a good way to say it. What do you think is the most important thing for our listeners to know about how to make campus a more trans-affirming space? I think without a doubt, the most important thing you can do as like an individual listening to your po- to this podcast and you're like, well, I don't know a lot about trans people, I think the most important thing you can do is, you know, educate yourself on gender identities. This can mean anything from, like, uh, going on the internet and, you know, doing some research, or that that could mean, like, coming to the SCI Center and being like, hey, I am trying to learn more about this. I would like help learning more on this. And I think that's something that we need to do a lot more, just, like, as as people, I think we need to be more comfortable being like, I don't know a lot about this. I would like to learn more. Can you help me learn more? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think if people are being more educated, that's that's incredibly helpful. And I think secondly, to not uh, place expectations. And Andy, you were touching on this earlier. 
um, but not place expectations on people of marginalized groups to explain their identities or to justify their identities. Because I, th I think that's a big part of it too, is justifying your identities because effectively what that saying is, why do you deserve to exist as this identity? Yeah. Explain to me why, you know, at, for me personally, it was explain to me why as a trans woman, you get to exist as a trans woman and get to experience, uh, you know, the typical woman experiences. Why, why are you allowed to do that I think is a lot of the attitude that gets pushed forward mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so you know to any any listeners who are wanting to make uh, a more inclusive environment just you know educate yourself and always 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 lead with kindness and compassion mm. yeah well, I think that's good advice. Yeah, I'm a, big, I'm a big fan of compassion. <laughs> I think we all need, like, a little bit of compassion and kindness in the world. Yeah, and just, like, if, if you don't understand something, and I am definitely, um, you know, I, I definitely do this too, but, like, if you don't understand something, do your best to just be like, okay, I don't understand that, and that's all right, you know? Yeah, I think that there's definitely, and, I mean, I'm, a cisgender identifying person so i can't speak to the genderqueer experience or the non-cis experience but i think that there's like a big rhetoric of like i don't understand therefore can't it can't be real therefore it can't be right and i think that there's just like you don't have to understand all the complexities of someone else's experience to like recognize them as a person and like want to make their experiences in life better i don't think that those have to be the same thing yeah, I think sort of like along that, a lot of, and a lot of times when people try to have those discussions, it turns into like, okay, I don't understand this, so I am trying to sort of like prove you wrong yeah, in your identity yes. or like catch yeah. you, like, aha, got you. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think if, if it would be a lot more productive if we just approached it from an angle of, I don't understand this yet, but I would like to. Yeah. And yeah. I would like to to have a conversation with you and to really understand where you're coming from. Because whenever I have those conversations, those conversations are never exhausting when it's just someone trying to understand yeah. my experience. Yeah. It gets exhausting when someone is trying to tell me what my experience is or what my experience should be. Yeah, like mm -hmm. debating your right to live as you are. Exactly, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And that's something that, like, cis students are never asked to do. Yeah, ex exactly. It's just a, a, an additional burden that is put on trans or genderqueer identifying students that should not have to exist. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely agree. And we're approaching our final question of the episode kind of sad that this conversation is almost to an end well <laughs> you can talk to me anytime if you find me on campus say hi yes. I love talking yeah um well since this podcast is called spiders have sex uh we want to like get your views and opinions about the sexualization of trans femmes um that could happen you know either on campus or even in society in general mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so I, I, I'm very happy that y'all put this question on here because <laughs> entirely unrelated to this podcast, I am doing in another class a different assignment that is also a podcast uh, that is like specifically on, um, and it's, it's a little bit more focused on pornography, but it's uh, about the like sexualization of trans people mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the stuff that I, it's, it's, it's a very, very interesting and dense topic, but trans people are sexualized a lot, shockingly. Um, and one of the biggest reasons for that is that there is a drastic difference between the representation of trans people in general media, say, movies tv shows whatever like obviously you have shows like you know orange is the new black which i've never seen but again research um (laughs) that you know have trans characters that are frankly pretty well written Mm -hmm. like obviously i i I don't think um i i am hesitant to call any portrayal of trans people perfect but i think you know it's definitely getting better uh, a lot of ways euphoria is also another example Mm. but um compared to like the amount of trans quote-unquote representation in like porn yeah um or just any other kind of like lewd images anything in that general area is so so much more so particularly like um you know, people who may not be watching progressive TV shows like Euphoria and Orange is the New Black that are maybe made for younger audiences. Um, It just increases how we see a lot of trans people as objects or, you know, means of pleasure. And also sort of reduces the validity of a lot of gender uh, of a lot of gender identities um the most prominent example of that would be terms like uh femboy Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. are you know in case anyone doesn't know that that's uh a term that you know used in a a lot of different ways nowadays but was originally um a way to essentially indicate if like a porn video is depicting like a trans woman, femboy, like someone who is biologically male but is presenting very femininely and sort of not putting any care into whether that person is actually trans. And so that has created this attitude in society of, you know, are you really a woman or are you like a chick with a dick? Like yeah. that that whole conversation where we're so focused on the genitalia Mm -hmm. of trans people which i i really truly think in a lot of ways is just like disgusting like the fact that we are obsessing over other people's genitalia but that is sort of what this has produced because we are seeing trans people as like primarily sexual objects and so that's why you know one of the first questions you get asked as a trans person a lot of times is like, oh, are you are you going to get the surgery? Do you have, like, all of your bits in the right place? And I, I if, if I could make one change just to how people talk about trans people generally, 
um, I would get people to stop asking me about my genitalia. Because that is a really weird question to answer. And I mean, even at this college, people have asked me, like, just straight up in D Hall, I've been asked by, like, people who, like, I don't know very well. Like, I'm, I'm not talking, like, friends or acquaintances. I'm talking about, like, oh, I've, like, spoken to this person a few times in, like, a dorm or what, or whatever, and they'll just straight up ask me, oh, are you, are you gonna, um, are you gonna get your penis cut off? And that's just, you know, that's a weird question to interact with, and yeah. I, and I wish I didn't have to do that. <laughs> It's definitely it's definitely a really invasive question number 1. Yeah. And there's also just seems to be something implied in it that's like you have to want bottom surgery in order to like be considered a woman. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's definitely like this narrative being pushed that like cuz like gender affirming care is its own its own topic entirely, but like touching on it We briefly, we could make a whole oh, we could yeah, make that's a whole, a whole separate that's a whole episode. Um <laughs> but there, because there's such an increasing push for gender-affirming care, a lot of people don't really understand what gender-affirming care is, and they assume that because some people seek gender-affirming procedures, such as bottom surgery, that that's, like, a required facet of transness. And yeah. that everybody yeah. who is trans therefore wants it, because they won't feel like a woman unless they do. Like, that's Absolutely. not... Yeah. It's not it, universal. It's, it's like, again, it's really dependent on the person themselves. Yeah. And it's kind of like, you have to put yourselves in, like, that position. Like, would you want someone else like asking you about your genitalia yeah. i'm pretty sure you wouldn't so why would you try it's, to do that to someone else yeah it's it's well because <laughs> no one wants to be asked like and like if i asked any cis person any specifics about their genitalia yeah. any any even even any question mentioning yeah. their genitalia yes. That's like a terribly weird question. But then this is sort of going back to, again, we, we talked about this earlier, but the you know burden of like explanation of your yeah. identity. Yes. So, you know, if someone asks me, oh, why are, are you gonna get the surgery? You know, it's it puts me in a weird position because I f- feel, first of all, I feel like I can't not answer the question because I f- feel in a lot of ways that I'm being uh, framed as like a representative of all trans people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is first of all an issue with not having a lot of trans people around because then you're putting all of this pressure on a very small group of people to represent an entire community. And you know, secondly, I then have to justify my experiences with dysphoria and I have to explain, well, you know, I don't really like surgery, so probably not. But also that doesn't make my identity any less valid as a woman because I don't want to get a terribly invasive surgery, which, you know, for those of you who don't know, uh, bottom surgery uh, for uh, uh, male to female people involves like a recovery period where you like can't walk upstairs for like a week at least and like a lot of like very difficult recovery and a lot of people choose to do that and that's great love that for them live your life queen but me personally <laughs> i don't want to get a surgery and i shouldn't be you know questioned yeah. in the middle of like at like 11 p.m in my freshman dorm like <laughs> hey are you gonna get the surgery and i'm like 
dude, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to not fail this semester. <laughs> just like, trying to live life. I, I'm literally just trying to live, laugh, love, not talk about my genitalia with a stranger. I, I know we said that this was gonna be the final question, but I kind of just thought of a follow up. Just talking about kind of how other people's approaches to like the conversation of transness uh, impacts you as a trans student. There's a lot of political discourse about like transgender gender affirming care, like s athletic stuff like that. And political discourse is really pervasive on this campus in classrooms, in uh, student organizations, just like in, like you said, dining hall conversations. How does it kind of impact like your day-to-day -day kind of emotional burden to have to like be subjected to a lot of those conversations that are questioning your rights and also just like asking you specifically to get involved just by like by virtue of who you are yeah so i mean the first thing is i i, I do want to make it clear that i am very fortunate to have like to generally be surrounded by people who understand and respect my identity and are not going to like ask uh out of the blue hey um what do you think about uh transgender athletes in sports and you know, expect me to be the ultimate authority on trans people. Because, you know, while I've definitely tried to do a research, I am also just, you know, some 19-year-old. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I think, but going back to I think what you're really getting at is, like, it's hard to exist on a campus when I know that there is a non-zero amount of people who think that like I shouldn't have been able to start estrogen yeah. when I did, or who think um, like oh gender access gender affirming healthcare should be inaccessible to people until they turn eighteen, and all all of this other stuff that is really all based on this idea that transness is bad or wrong or curable or a phase or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of difficult to exist on a campus with people who, some of whom, and I don't know who, but some of whom just don't believe that me and people like me yeah. deserve rights. Yeah, And that's a really hard thing to sort of just like, Oh, I'm going to D Hall. Half of the people eating breakfast here might think that I don't deserve rights. Yeah. yeah. And that's just something I try not to think about too much. <laughs> yeah. But it's hard not to. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for having me on this podcast. I, I think it's very important to talk about uh, people's different experiences and I also I love talking about myself it's very fun <laughs> but we love having you we love talking to you Jasmine like you're such a fun person to be around we love oh. to hear it well well shocks <laughs> thank you to everyone who listened to this episode and if you have something that you want to say to us suggestions feedback if we said something wrong and you want to talk to us about it we invite you to dm us at spiders have sex on instagram um and or find us on campus yes we're yeah. very easy people to find. <laughs> oh, yeah. Especially Andy. I feel like you could find her very easily. Well, I'm, I'm here to be found. Um, <laughs> well, thank you to everyone who listened to this episode, and yes. we'll see you on the next feature. Woo, I'm excited. Have a good day, you guys.